0: Okay, I'm going to go in kind of a different starter direction than what we usually do. I thought I would switch it up. That is unless you've been personally victimized by this creature, in which case trigger warning and listener discretion is advised. This opener was probably better to have opened up our phantom time episode for Easter, but I don't know. I didn't know about it then. So here it is now. As always, a setup by me is required. It was just after Easter, the Easter Bunny eggs were still hot from the Easter Bunny's butt or wherever he keeps the eggs. My kid says to me, Hey mom, have you ever heard of the Bunny Man? And I thought to myself, what kind of weird name to call the Easter Bunny is that? And I humored him with a no.
1: To be fair, this is the same child who asked you what you call the elbow on your legs.
0: (laughs) There's also something the same kid also said recently that I'm not going to put on the podcast, but remind me to tell you (laughs) after. We're never going to remember it, but it'll come up. Okay, so he says to me, quote, It's kind of like the public monster, but it has the head of a bunny, and instead of a rusty old axe, it has a chainsaw. Vroom, vroom. No DNA test required. He's my kid. No idea where he heard it. I didn't really think about it again until I was researching episodes. And sure enough, Bunny Man, North Virginia. It's a thing. He was talking about a real thing.
1: It does his research.
0: I know. No idea where, but here we are. It made it to the podcast. He's inspiring. Bunny Man was started by two incidents of a man in a rabbit costume threatening people with an axe. And it just kind of took off from there. I guess it would as it does legend varies but generally speaking the bunny man is an insane murderer that appears on halloween night at midnight under the bunny man bridge it also goes by Colchester overpass but bunny man bridge is way better in my opinion so he does have a little bit in common with michael myers also a fan of halloween and it is said that if you stay under the bridge you will see him when the clock strikes midnight there will be a bright white light in the bridge under the white light the murderous bunny will appear with an axe saying bunny and murderous in the same sentence is actually hilarious just like elbow of your knee (laughs) bunny man is linked to many different origin stories first one is of a bunny man responsible for the deaths of two children Another one that I've creatively called the Michael Myers origin story, which started in the brutal murders in an insane asylum located in the woods and a bunch of murders that took place there. And just as the crazies there who committed the murder were about to get the death penalty, the asylum was shut down on account of all the new people moving in in the area. As you do with insane asylums, I live right next to one. So the inmates are all piled into transport vehicles to be moved to a new asylum, and innocently enough, the transport vehicle careens off the side of a mountain into the wilderness. The 10 survivors of the crash took off into the night, and the next day the police retrieved all but two of the escapees, Marcus A. Walster and Douglas J. Griffin. As the police were still searching, they saw a footprint in the mud, and near the footprint it said, you'll never find me, and you know it To Signed, the bunny man. The police knew what happened to one of the inmates, but not the other. So it's all very vague. So now you probably know why I call it the Michael Myers origin story.
1: Might I just also add, it is a much darker version of the wrongfully accused plot from the Leslie Nielsen kind of B-track.
0: Yeah, and it's the exact plot of one of the Halloween movies as well. Apparently it's very popular, as I've never seen that one, actually, the one you just said. So I'll just have to take your word for it. Okay. On the Halloween track, as I brought up multiple times, it's my favorite Halloween movie, by the way. Could you imagine Halloween with a guy with a bunny head instead of a Michael Myers mask? I don't think it would be very good for ratings.
1: I mean, it really depends on how the bunny head's done. Like Donnie Darko style? Yeah, that'd be great.
0: True. True. But Donnie Darko's Donnie Darko.
1: And let's face it, like we thought clowns were just kind of like mildly kind of annoying, slightly alarming. And then like there was the clown wave of like 2018.
0: Yes. Clown bunny i mean it it goes this one i just feel like it kind of like i don't know it's super weird but you know what i have a whole other part about it's actually linked to some real life happenings and for editing purposes do you think we should just end it here i think that's sufficient yeah if you guys
1: want to hear more about the bunny man we can do an episode on it it'll probably come up in our creature features in october
0: yeah true let's do that this is an opener not a full-on story so let's leave it at that
1: okay and we'll cue the music From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a Journey to the Fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where we have the most attractive audience, and we're not afraid to say it, no matter how many emails we're gonna get from our HR you know, due to the improper workplace behavior.
0: Is it because they're not actually attractive?
1: (laughs) No, it's more so because our HR doesn't really have any power over us. Mostly because they don't exist either. Okay. (laughs) However, we are your very interested hosts, Taylor and Chelsea, here today talking to you about USOs in a very particular way this time. More so because it's just from one book. It's a great book. I think that's good to get out of the way right now. Okay about USOs in Russia, how we're going to go through this. I'm going to talk a bit about the book, just kind of in in whole. We're going to talk a bit about the authors, give you a bit of an intro, and we're going to take a few snippets from this book because I don't want to ruin the whole thing for you. I just want to actually entice some of you guys. If you're interested in it, go take a read because it's a fantastic book and I don't think enough people know about it. So this is the book right here for those of you watching along with us. It is Russia's USO Secret and it is by Paul Stonehill and Philip Mantle. I believe it came out in 2016. I found out about this when they were doing an interview with George Knapp actually on Coast to Coast back around that time.
0: Mm, That would be a good interview.
1: One thing you should know right now, and I need to give this warning because we just came off of talking about somebody who used nothing but Russian sources for their science for quite a while, only to be realized that they probably shouldn't be doing that. I looked into these guys to make sure that they actually have some acumen to be reporting on Russian stuff. And in fact, they do.
0: Thank you for doing your due diligence.
1: Yes, just (laughs) the easiest of due diligence searches here. And it does in fact come from coast to coast, but because it was on George Knapp, not mori mm. I actually trust them to have proper credentials.
0: I agree with that.
1: You know, maybe one day we do the lore of coast to coast because we have talked about it a lot.
0: That would be a lot. good one. I'm going to add it right now. And another one would be a good one would be our, our bell. I do have all of those people on our people list, actually. Oh, good. But lore of coast to coast is a good one.
1: Let's start specifically with Paul Stonehill, who is an international researcher and author whose areas of research and published work include UFOs and USOs, Soviet space exploration and Eurasian paranormal phenomena. He was born in Kiev, USSR at the time and traveled through various parts of the Soviet Union in his youth. Paul is fluent in Russian and knows Ukrainian. So I actually believe when he's talking about this, he knows what he's talking about and has at least discussed this with many of the people that are actually talked about in the book. Phil Mantle, on the other hand, although it's not specifically mentioned that he's fluent in Russian, he is an international UFO researcher, lecturer, and broadcaster. His books have been published in six different languages around the world. He is the former director of investigations for the British UFO Research Association and former MUFON representative for England. So he's at least been involved a lot in UFO worlds, particularly in Europe. We've at least talked about USOs before. I don't know if we've ever described them in great detail or differentiated what a UFO is versus what a USO is. A UFO is an unidentified flying object. A UAE is unidentified aerial phenomena. USO is particularly different because it's not only seen in the sky. A USO is an unidentified submersible object. So it, at some point, either exclusively or just a portion of the time, is seen in or going into or out of water.
0: We did briefly, I don't know that we went over it so much, but Shake Harbor incident did have a component of a USO.
1: That's true. And I think we kind of just briefly went over it.
0: Yeah. Just briefly, because it did fly into the bay. Yeah, this is more of a proper USO.
1: Yeah, the reason they're looking at Russia, it gets into it very early on. They talked about it in the intro of their book. Like many researchers in Russia, the authors of this book have been fascinated by USO reports. USO is an acronym for unidentified submersible objects. Essentially what we think of as UFOs, but underwater. That's even better than what I said. They shortened it right up. (laughs) In this book, we will detail accounts of strange phenomena observed at sea, along with mysterious underwater objects, many of which have been reported by sincere and diligent witnesses. We will take a close look at the work of our colleagues in Russia and the Soviet Union, who have studied this remarkable topic for decades. We must add, however, that at times, some researchers have been very reluctant to release such information, and others have simply refused. Secret files of the Soviet Navy contain a great deal of valuable information about UFO and USO sightings. and researchers of the Soviet military have been very thorough and professional. Unfortunately, the files continue to be largely inaccessible even after the fall of the USSR. But through years of research and with the help of our colleagues in the former Soviet Union, modern Russia, Ukraine, and other independent countries, we have been able to collect a great deal of fascinating and previously unpublished stories. I didn't put this in here, but when they are doing their book, they're very clear when it is just conversation, when it is detailed from military records, or where it's verified by third parties. I thought this would be a great time to do it because people are focused on Russia. We have been talking for a long time about doing USOs, and this spans the spectrum of what a USO sighting can be.
0: Perfect. I'm intrigued.
1: Sit back, enjoy, and just see where this river takes us. I will. I just wanted to start this off because this sounded almost exactly like a Russian Project Blue Book, but it was just one guy that worked for Central Intelligence. So Yevgeny Litvinov, who's a typical intelligence officer for the KGB, he developed a complex method of selecting and classifying cases and started collecting stories through contacting the different military personnel. And he ended up with over 10,000 observations and incidents. He developed a scale of credible authenticity based on 350 criteria. From this, he concluded that about 70% of UFO reports can be explained as either misidentification of known technology, meteorological phenomena, or simple wishful thinking. However, he argued the other 30% are observations of bona fide UFOs. In his opinion, there are too many of them to wave away. Litvinov added the more often than not UFOs are observed over military installations, areas of ecological disaster, and geological faults.
0: Ecological disaster? Really?
1: That's what he said.
0: Very cool. I've never heard that. I don't think ever.
1: Yeah, there's actually a lot that comes up in this book. I will have to lend it to you because it's a fantastic book. I've been holding on to it because I've been wanting to do this episode.
0: No, you know what? Doing this podcast, I have no time for outside reading. It's strictly because we record one per week. I know. It is research for me during weekdays. I have no time if I want to do anything for like leisure or anything. No, but I have my Kobo. Is that what it's called? Electronic reader. I don't know what it's called. I couldn't
1: tell you what you have.
0: I don't even know it because I haven't like used it since I got it because I have no time but I'm ready to load it up for when I go to Spain and I'm going to load some stuff on there so I might look at that one actually and add it on there it sounds based on how this episode goes of course. It's a fantastic (laughs)
1: book don't make your judgment until the end I build up the stories as we go okay this one I just titled the story the Soviet Meteorological Services and UFOs it's the name of the sub chapter within the book. In the central north of Russia lies Katanga Katanga's first hydro meteorological station was established in 1934. In the station's archives is a thin file titled UP, Unidentified Phenomena. According to Sergeant Ignatiev, head of the Katanga Airport, Soviet meteorologists have often observed UFOs frequently in the form of a radiant sphere. One such sphere was observed on October 22nd, 1979 by Lyudmila Kuzmenko. I do have to apologize, all of these names are going to be Russian or Russian adjacent, so I will butcher some of them, but I am going to... Persevere.
0: But we try our best.
1: <laughs> exactly. A weather forecaster, along with flight commander Alexander Byazatov and other colleagues. It was the northeast of the position, about 15 kilometers from the village, at fairly low altitude of 200 to 300 meters. The sphere moved towards the southeast for 10 minutes, then faded and turned into a thin cloud, simply vanishing. The same was confirmed by the crew of IL-62, flying the Petropavlovsk to Moscow flight at an altitude of 10,800 meters at the time of the sighting. They were 300 kilometers from Katanga. Another aircraft, an AN AN-26, reported the same phenomenon. In October of 1987, the team of Katanga meteorologists recorded another unusual phenomenon. To the southwest behind the Katanga River, an unidentified object was seen descending at 60-degree angle until it disappeared in an area of poor visibility low to the horizon. It was described as a metallic-looking and of complex shape, primarily cylindrical but with a dome at the top. The object's movements were accompanied by a smokier trail, which extended behind. Air traffic controllers confirmed the presence of the UFO. Attack helicopters were dispatched after the UFO was detected, but they found no trace of it. And pilots who have flown over this remote Russian Arctic region have tended to observe UFOs more frequently than their colleagues who fly over more heavily populated areas. Several have included close engagements. At other times, encounters involve loss of electronic controls of various kinds, whether of airborne sound or other kinds of malfunctioning. Mm. I thought I would just start off with the basic, basic UFO story. No,
0: that's a really good one to start off on.
1: And it's about an area that is very remote. It's like right in the middle of Russia at the very tip of the north. So it's very isolated. Also Lots an interesting there,
0: point that it's so isolated.
1: This one I entitled The Map Story. In the Mediterranean, on... November of 1976, the Coviet Diesel Submarine Project 641, Foxtrot per NATO classification, navigated through the Strait of Gibraltar and surfaced in the Mediterranean Sea. It was 2 a.m. and the sea was absolutely still. The captain, the watch officer, and the signal men all came up on the deck to verify the vessel's coordinates. Suddenly they noticed a bright silver sphere to the left, just above the horizon. The sphere dropped rapidly and suddenly they all observed right in front of the sub, on the water, an illuminated map of the Mediterranean. It appeared at precisely the moment when the navigator was trying to determine the sub's location, measuring the position of the stars. The impression was that someone aboard the sphere read the navigator's mind. Moreover, the illuminated map also indicated the sub's position. The sphere flew away and the map disappeared all to the absolute astonishment of the observers
0: that's crazy it just like appeared in their minds
1: no the map appeared on the ocean according to them yeah
0: crazy wow okay huh that's mind-blowing and this one's in the mediterranean yeah
1: yeah right near gibraltar
0: okay Hmm. wow
1: next one up called this one the mothership in the 1970s reports issued by rear admiral victor a domoslovsky chief of the pacific fleet's intelligence department described an unknown gigantic cylindrical object observed by the soviet navy somewhere in a distant region of the pacific ocean the object was 809 feet long when it hovered over the ocean smaller objects exited from one end of it like bees from a beehive and descended into the ocean sometime later they emerged from the water and re-entered the gigantic UFO
0: like a mothership yeah it's expelling babies from its body
1: and then they're coming back like a mother or something. <laughs>
0: Well, usually you expel them, hoping they don't come back. This is too- okay.
1: <laughs> this one, we're going to get into a few longer stories now from this book. This one's called The Croakers, and I, I freaking love this story. During the late 1960s, the Cold War was still raging, and the dangers for both sides of the ruthless and frequently invisible war lurked in the skies on land and underwater. During this period, a particularly strange underwater phenomenon attracted the attention of Soviet Navy's high command. Soviet nuclear-powered submarines began encountering strange sounds emanating from moving objects at great depths. Mm. The process of listening to underwater sounds is known as hydroacoustic monitoring, and these Soviet monitors began detecting strange signals that resembled the croaking of frogs. What? The objects responsible for these sounds were dubbed the Kvakhry, a term which was officially adopted within the Soviet Navy's documents. Kvakets in Russian means to croak. So it was some sort of play on the word crow.
0: Oh, God, that's creepy. Ugh.
1: The nuclear submarine, which drove the Cold War's most furious phase of the arms race, seemed to have been of greatest interest to the factory. According to Vice Admiral Viktor Petrushev, Chief of Operations on the General Staff of the Russian Navy and Professor of the Academy of Military Sciences, the Soviet had built 243 nuclear submarines of various classes, as well as over 1,000 diesel submarines the course of bearing indicators of the Soviet naval vessels demonstrated that the unknown objects would circle the subs and change the frequency and tone of their signals. The Soviets were unable to establish the source of these sounds and they would come from different sides with constant changes in tone. It was as if the objects were inviting the submarine to engage in conversation of sorts. My God. The Kvakhry reacted actively but apparently never aggressively to the acoustic dispatches from the submarine. They would accompany Soviet submarines until the latter would exit a certain area, then produce the croaking sound for the last time. They would disappear. In April of 1970, for instance, the Avakari accompanied a reconnaissance vessel known as the Keratin Laptev, codenamed SSV-503, while it was on a secret mission in the North Atlantic. This was precisely at the time when a Soviet nuclear submarine, the K-8, perished in the area. The reconnaissance ship then stopped its sonar operations, rushed to the submarine, and was able to save many of the crew. Even though there was never any known hostile confrontations with the Kvakhry in the long years of their interactions, Soviet commander and submarine crews quite naturally found encounters with them stressful. Soviet Minister of Defense Marshal Andrei Antonovich Brechko ordered the creation of a special research team by the Intelligence Directorate of the Soviet Navy to investigate the Kvakhry. Admiral Sergei Georgiev. Georgievich, close mm-hmm. enough, Gorshaw, Gorshkov spared no effort to research this phenomenon, which was obstructing his Navy's operations. Wow. He ordered a series of oceanic expeditions to research the Kavakari as well as other unusual phenomena. Soviet officers in the top secret naval research program performed their duties eagerly. They were well educated, highly professional people. They continuously visited different Soviet fleets and collected all available information. Vladimir Klinchenko, a retired Soviet naval officer, and Submariner, who had also been a senior officer in the main staff of the Russian Navy, was the first former Soviet Navy officer to reveal details about the Kavakery. He recalled the stir created by reports of strange unidentified objects that accompanied Soviet subs in their secret missions in unfriendly waters. He considered the Kavakery to be like UFOs, observed by many and yet unproven. The Kvakhry were encountered mostly in the Atlantic Ocean, but also in the northern areas such as the Norwegian Sea and on the western border of the Barents Sea. According to Deo Vadim Kilichenko, to other sources, they were also found to operate as far away as near the Philippines. Adding to the mystery is that sonar technicians not only detected croaking sounds, but other strange sounds as well. Although the croaking sounds were the most common, no one knew why. Even now, little is confirmed in the way of specifics about the phenomenon, or the program. Wow. Apparently the phenomenon ceased to bother Soviet ships in the early 1980s and the Kvakhry research program was abruptly stopped. Other former Soviet military officers and researchers have revealed more information about the unusual underwater phenomenon. Were the Kvakhry some kind of American technology? Not Mm -hmm. surprisingly, opinions are divided. Admiral, Vladimir, Nikolaevich Chernovin was, for instance, strongly stated that he knew for a fact that the Americans had instructions to collect information about the anomalous phenomena, very much like the Soviet instructions regarding UFOs and USOs written by their higher-ups. For this reason, some Soviet military researchers believed the Kavakri to be genuine USOs, not manufactured by the US. Yet most of the specialists in the research groups who study the phenomenon had not agreed with the assessment. Many believed America to be the chief susket behind the Kavakri, some surmise from the Soviet Navy was that its vessels were encountering some sort of advanced U.S. submarine tracking technology, and Rear Admiral Vladimir Namoy, for example, suggested that the Gvakari were U.S. Navy sonic underwater buoys. Back in September of 1975, as a captain first rank, Namov was given command of the KIN Submariner Cruiser. He heard the Kvakhry during his mission and after also studying the experience of the Soviet nuclear submarines armed with ballistics missiles, say that he established a procedure to evade the Kvakhry on the basis that they were sonic underwater buoys. These buoys would have been part of SOSUS, an Ackerman for Sound Surveillance System a chain of underwater listening posts across the North Atlantic Ocean near Greenland, Iceland and the UK. This was operated by the US Navy to track Soviet submarines in the Atlantic and elsewhere. According to Namov, during its service history, the K-182 was approached by the Kvakhry 72 times and was able to cut contact with them all 72 times. His experience naturally elicited a great interest from the Soviet High Command. Namov's opinion is shared by an anonymous Soviet submariner who expressed his opinion in one of the Russian forums dedicated to the Vakari phenomenon. This person wrote that on a number of occasions he heard sounds emitted by Vakari through the sound channel on the Soviet MGK-300 Rubin submarine towed array sonar. He recorded the sounds and analyzed them during the years he served aboard the submarine of the 3rd Division. This was in the mid-1970s. And when the Kvakhry phenomenon was in its heyday at the beginning of the 1980s, he personally observed the phenomenon and became convinced that it was caused by an aerial buoy dropped by the US Navy PS or PM aircraft. He heard the familiar Kvakhry sounds through the sonar sound channel of a surface vessel. An aircraft would drop the buoy to the Soviets at once and at once would hear the Kvakhry sounds from precisely the direction where the buoy had landed. The anonymous writer added that it is significant that the sonar operators of Surface vessels had not been given instructions to study the Gavakari. Or he added, the results of such studies could have been so mundane and clear that only the submariners still carried romantic recollection about the Gavakari phenomenon.
0: So they're saying that it was the buoys that they dropped.
1: Some people think it is, some people okay. are convinced it was not. And yeah. it really just depends on who you're talking to and the interaction they had because there is way more about this in the book i just took the very general i'll let
0: you finish the story and i'm making a few points here to ask you about after
1: there's just a little bit left the writer Mm -hmm. also mentioned that the Gavakri sounds always reminded him of the typical dry knocking sound of wooden spoons as made by spoon players in russian folk music McVacry conduct could be best understood, he argued, if one recalls that the buoys contained water-filled cell batteries. As the batteries discharged, the signals emitted became longer. And that's where that ends. I will leave the rest to you to learn by reading the book.
0: Yeah, of course. We want people to read the book, obviously. All you beautiful, wonderful, attractive people. A couple things struck me about this story. First, I want to address Some people thinking it was the US and some people not thinking it was the US. So these buoy type objects were, in fact, a thing that the US were dropping. I'm assuming to monitor Russian submarines.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what they were doing. They basically had them in there so they knew where their nuclear subs were.
0: Okay, fair enough. I get that. Does it address in the book? Because obviously these were a legitimate thing, obviously if it's a legitimate thing, there's going to be no dispute amongst people saying it was or wasn't a thing if they're actually dropping these things, which seems completely legit, you'd want to know where the Russian nuclear submarines are.
1: Yeah. And likewise, you would want to know if you're being spied on as a submarine. So you would should be able to recognize those sounds.
0: Obviously, the ones that they're talking about in this book are acting in a way that's not typical of the actual buoys that the US are dropping to monitor because they're changing their sounds is that a right statement
1: I don't want to spoil too much because I only just touched on the tip of the interactions that the croakers had with submarines but all the stories they get into within the book outside of what I just described are not things that you would typically characterize a boy being able to do or really anything that's man-made in the water
0: OK, I just want to make that kind of clear for the people who are listening that this is not typical of the way that we know that these buoys that we know are a thing that are out there, that they are not typical of the way that those are operating. OK.
1: And this one guy who's saying that he's encountered them 72 times, you got to also remember that it's the 70s and 80s. It's not like he heard a recording on somebody's iPhone of what they sounded like. Yeah. He heard something and he's like, oh, yeah, that's the croakers. Everybody's been talking about.
0: Yeah, super creepy. My next point, super creepy. I could never be a submarine operator. I could not do that. That is one of the most ballsy things you could do. There's a lot of ballsy things you can do, but in my eyes, one of the most ballsy things you can do is to get in a thing and go down to the bottom of the ocean. Creepy. I don't know what you're going to encounter down there, and this book just proves it. That's my second point. Third point. This seems to be particularly widespread and it seems to be everywhere where their submarines are pretty much.
1: And they get into it more so like it is predominantly the Atlantic Ocean. However, once you actually look at the stories, they're all over the place.
0: They're all over the place. Just from what you said, when they're encountering these things, we can pretty much assume that they're everywhere just from everywhere that you said
1: at least in the ocean pre-1980
0: yes the last thing i want to say super creepy that it seems to be like they're interacting to make conversation and changing the sounds as if they're like do you speak spanish do you speak frog do you speak beeps do you like that's also super. do you know the uh,
1: atomic power of hydrogen Something along those, yeah.
0: Yeah, like, do you speak Morse code? Which I assume they didn't do Morse code, but of all things, the croaking or the spoons, like, do you speak Russian spoons? No, one yeah. don't, but...
1: Does anybody on the submarine play spoons?
0: Yeah, <laughs> and they did, but I, apparently they didn't know how to play it back to them to communicate. Yeah, they couldn't <laughs> play
1: it into the mic.
0: Okay, those are all my points that I had to make on that particular encounter. Super cool encounter.
1: Yeah, and this is probably my favorite encounter that we're going to talk about today. This one I just called the swimmers. In the summer of 1982, Mark Steinberg, along with Lieutenant Colonel Gennady Zverev, conducted periodic training of the reconnaissance divers, also known as frogmen, from the Turkestan and Central Asian military regions. Some of these training exercises took place at the Kul Lake in Kyrgyzstan. Quite unexpectedly, the officers were paid a visit by a very important official, Major General V. Demianenko, commander of the Military Diver Service of the Engineer Forces of the Ministry of Defense. He informed the local officers of an extraordinary event that had occurred during similar training exercises at the Trans-Baikal and West Siberian military regions. There, during their military training dives in Lake Baikal, the frogmen had encountered mysterious underwater swimmers, very human-like, except that the size was much larger, almost three
0: meters. swimmers <laughs> Oh my god.
1: Despite icy cold water temperatures and a depth of 50 meters, they were dressed only in tight-fitting silvery suits with neither scuba diving equipment, aqualongs, nor any other equipment, only spear-like helmets concealing their heads. The local military commander, who was alarmed by such encounters, decided on a plan to capture one of these creatures. To complete the mission, a special group of seven divers under the command of an officer had been dispatched. Apparently, as the frogmen tried to cover the creature with a net, some powerful unknown force threw the entire group out of the deep water to the surface. In those days, the equipment of the frogmen did not allow rapid ascent from such depths without strict adherence to the process of decompression stops. Therefore, all the members of the ill-fated expedition were stricken by, oh, what do you call that? You got to get into an iron lung? Aeroembolism.
0: Oh, I wouldn't have known that word. It's like descending too fast, right?
1: Going up too fast. The bends. Yeah. Or caisson disease.
0: Oh, The
1: only God. remedial treatment available consisted of an immediate confinement under decompression conditions within a pressure chamber. There were several such pressure chambers in the military region, but only one was in working condition. And it was only built to contain no more than two persons at any time. Seeing little choice in the matter, the local commanding officer forced four frogmen into the chamber at once. As a result, three of the men, including the group leader, died while the rest became invalids. The Major General rushed to Kul to warn the local military against similar risky operations, although Kul Lake is shallower than Lake Baikal, which is the world's deepest lake, as well as the largest freshwater lake in terms of volume. The depth of the former seemed sufficient to contain similar mysterious creatures. Did the Major General know something that Officer Steinberg did not? We shall probably never know. A short time later, the staff quarters of the Turkmenistan military region received an order from the Commander-in-Chief of the Land Office. The order consisted of reprimands and a detailed analysis of the Lake Baikal event. It was supplemented by an information bulletin from the headquarters of the engineer forces of the Ministry of Defense, USSR. The bulletin listed numerous deepwater lakes where sightings of anomalous phenomenon had been registered, appearances of unknown underwater creatures similar to the Baikal type, descent and surfacing of giant disks and spheres, and a powerful luminescence emanating from the depths of the lake. Such official documents, without exception, were highly classified and for eyes only, of a very limited circle of military officers. The purpose of such documents was to prevent unnecessary encounters. The territory under the military unit jurisdiction, where Steinberg had served, contained an anomalous water reservoir, Seriz Lake, in the Pamir region, located deep in the mountains of Tajikistan. Sarez Lake was created in 1911 when a strong earthquake triggered a massive landslide that in turn became a huge dam. the Mergob River, now called the Usoi Dam. The area still experiences considerable seismic activity today and it is possibly that part of the right bank may slump into the lake, creating a gigantic wave that will top over and possibly breach the natural dam, creating a catastrophic flood downstream reaching all the way to the Aral Sea. Since 2004, the lake has been monitored for surging water levels or other events that might cause the dam to fail. I think I can cut it there just because the rest isn't as exciting as that part of the story.
0: That one is super creepy. This further proof that I hate going into any water. I'm a little bit speechless on that story.
1: Yeah, like it comes out of nowhere.
0: There's people in that one. So they caught these people and put them in an iron lung and they died. No,
1: they tried to capture them and they basically thwarted it and the people that were tasked with capturing them had to go into the island.
0: Oh, okay, I misunderstood that, okay. Oh my God, I don't even know what to do with that information. I've never heard of an encounter like this before.
1: I do like how well researched it is, and that is definitely like a secondary story, but nonetheless, it's a pretty interesting story.
0: Yeah, and they were people. They weren't smaller ships coming out of a larger ship. They were for sure humanoid figured.
1: Three meter tall people.
0: That is in silver suits
1: and helmets.
0: I don't even know what to do with that information. I just don't. This is why I don't like going into the water. You don't know what's down there. I
1: thought it was the fish. It could
0: be Nessie. It could be a fish touching me. I don't even want a fish touching me. But then you talk about people just, you know, with silver suits and helmets, just, you know, carelessly floating around down there. What are they doing in the water? There's no great people question. down there. What are they doing down there? They're not checking out society at that point.
1: Well, interestingly enough, there were people down there.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, there were people down, but they weren't our people. And interesting thing about that is the deep depths that they're at where we're having to have people in iron lungs is the least studied portion of Earth. And I believe they say, I just put this somewhere actually in my notes somewhere. I don't know where it was. Oh, I know where it was coming up on an episode on your phone probably is where you're listening. TBD. They say that the bottom of the ocean is less studied than the surface of the moon.
1: We actually know a lot about the surface of the moon.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting that we're seeing unidentified flying humanoids, UFH, in these depths where what the fuck would they be doing down there they're
1: still usos because they're submersible objects yeah
0: i guess yes but they're humans are objects but what what the fuck would they be doing down there they're not coming above maybe they are we haven't seen anybody well i guess we have reported flying humanoids but
1: we also have stories of crafts leaving and entering bodies of water
0: yes but not humanoids have we had well, humanoids leaving and entering? Well, yes, we have, obviously.
1: I also have to kind of leave that one unanswered as if you want the answer, go read the book. It is a fantastic book.
0: Oh, it does answer it. Okay. Oh, this is some crazy stuff. This is not something I've heard before. Okay. Okay. We can continue. And
1: outside of this book, this is stuff that I've never seen before. And I actually, I'm going to keep this a short episode just so that more people are know about this because I generally people listen when we have shorter episodes. Yeah. So yeah, that's our episode looking into the Russian USOs. If you would like to learn more, please go pick up Russia's USO secrets by Paul Stonehill and Philip Mantle. I'm going to. Published in 2016 under Richard Dolan Press. Funnily oh, enough, I don't know why I know that name.
0: Richard Dolan, he's been on coast is where you know that from. But I can't place Yeah, him either. what's he actually? Yeah, I can't place him either. He's been on coast a bunch, though.
1: He looks familiar, too.
0: Oh, that doesn't look familiar to me. Author UFO Chronicles, Master of Deception, Alien Agenda's Secret Space Program. He wrote a book called The Secret Space Program. We might know him from like Serpo or something like that.
1: Okay. But anyhow, he doesn't really have anything to do with this.
0: He just published it.
1: We will talk more about USOs in the future, but I am going to cut this episode here. If you are enticed, please go pick up that book. In the meantime, I have been Taylor here with Chelsea.
0: I have been Chelsea. Laying
1: you in for the future with some naturey sounds and a goat at the end. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week.
0: No frog noises, though. No frog croaking. No frog noises. Bye!
1: Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what